Good evening to you all out there in the dark lands. A first thing to uh, speak to tonight is the practice of listening to a Dharma talk. It's a practice. It's a practice. So this is a case where you want to incline the mind to be present and open to what's being said. And you probably don't have to worry too much about remembering it all. Although you may be surprised how much of it you do remember. Often the most important benefit that you get from this kind of talk is some image or some phrase or some pointing that lands and resonates with you. Or sometimes the most valuable thing you get from a talk like this is some question or some investigative uh, response to something that you hear. Sometimes you'll hear things in a Dharma talk that seemingly don't make any sense whatsoever and then five years into your practice further all of a sudden you hear something like that again and the mind goes oh yeah okay that's what they were talking about so if you think about this process as uh, one of openness um, that would be good You don't need to try to memorize it. I'm going to talk about a number of things tonight, but I'm going to start with a little bit of the Buddha's own journey and biography. The Buddha, of course, was a human being like us. He never claimed to be anything other than that. But he was a very exceptional person in a lot of ways, even before he undertook his spiritual quest. There was something about his uh, psyche and the tenderness of his heart that when he came across some very clear examples of suffering, that caused him to leave a cushy life uh, of ease and wealth and power to set out to try to find an answer to what he saw when he recognized old age, sickness, and death. So the Buddha himself says about this, uh, this experience of seeing old age, sickness, and death represented in particular individuals he came across as the circumstances that caused the vanity of youth to entirely leave him. And he was a relatively young man at the time. It kind of sobered him up, you know, the way contact with 
tragedy or suffering sometimes can make us wake up and realize uh, it's not not a disco out there. So it caused the Buddha to go on this uh, deep search and many years of practice where he tried a lot of different ways to practice. He developed concentration first to a very high degree and then he went through a phase where he decided, well, concentration alone didn't, didn't fix the suffering, didn't seem to provide the answer. Then he went through a period of time where he practiced uh, these austerities, these mortifications where like he wouldn't eat and he wouldn't sleep and you know he was pushing his body right to the edge in the hopes that those kinds of austerities would uh, make his heart mind kind of give up the solution. And it didn't work. In fact, he came right close to the point of death before he realized this, this is a dead end. This uh, use of pain and, and uh, self-punishment as a way to uh, attain something uh, beneficial uh, to support spiritual progress. This isn't really what's called for. So having, having done this, he had a memory actually of a period in his life when he was a boy where there was a sense of uh, well-being as he watched his father plow a field in some sort of uh, spring ritual. And with that memory, the insight arose in him. Uh, it doesn't have to be a punitive path. It doesn't have to be a path of, of punishment or uh, austerity only. And in fact, there are pleasures uh, which are wholesome and not to be feared that can be very much part of the process of waking up. So with these combined experiences, he found what is sometimes described as the middle path. The middle path between indulgence and uh, self-punishment. And he said, that's really the groove that seems to do what is necessary in terms of human beings being able to find their way. And then after the Buddha's awakening, he had another big question, because even though it seemed to, to him that he, he understood things, he had the answer, and he had, in fact, liberated his own mind, then the next question was, should I try to teach this? And his initial inclination of mind was actually, uh, I'm not so sure about that. You know, this is kind of counterintuitive what I've figured out. It goes against the, the stream of human assumptions in many ways. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if uh, they're going to get it. And uh, it's said at that point that uh, some uh, particular beings came to him and, and basically said, no, you know, uh, please consider, please reconsider. You know, there are beings in the world that have but 
little dust in their eyes, meaning they're not all that deluded. They're deluded. Yeah, sure, they're deluded, but you know, they're not that deluded. There's there's people out that there that are would be able to to hear and benefit from what you've learned if you would only teach it to them. And so um, that really activated his his Bodhi, Buddha heart, his Bodhisattva intentions to be of benefit to beings, and he decided he would teach. And the framework of the Buddhist teaching uh, came forward over the years of his teaching, and that framework for his teaching, you know, his his. Uh, answer to the question of like, how am I ever going to explain this to them? How, how can I put this so that they could get it turned into what are called the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path? So almost any uh, Buddhist school or tradition has within it the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as a very central part of its teaching. So when there are like universal congresses of Buddhist monastics and things like that, they would all be agreeing uh, in large measure on this particular set of teachings. So I'm going to talk a little bit on a high level about what those teachings are, and I'm going to focus um, in particular on a section of the teachings that are called uh, wise intention. So the Four Noble Truths are the top-line explanation of the Buddhist system. So if you were going to put them in other language, you'd say the Four Noble Truths are uh, the problem statement, uh, the uh, discussion about what's causing the problem, and then uh, a discussion about can it be fixed, and then how, how would you go about doing that? So any of you who are like urban planners or uh, have to write grants for a living or anything like that, you can kind of recognize the language, right? So the first noble truth, the, the problem statement of the Buddha is, there is unsatisfactoriness, there is suffering. And he talks about that in a lot of different ways. You know, there's the the suffering of getting what we don't want, like old age, sickness, and death. There's the not getting what we do want. There's the the loss of what we hold dear. There's the uh, truth of impermanence. There's the uncontrollability of phenomenon. There's like a lot of things. There's a lot of things there. And the Buddha said in the second noble truth where he's talking about causes, he says, well, the cause of discretionary human suffering is actually craving born from ignorance. Meaning, we want things to be a certain way 
that they can't be. And we try to implement that control, and we can't. And that all comes out of not understanding how reality is organized and how it's set up and what's baked into it. The third noble truth is, it is possible to be free from discretionary human suffering. Um, And the fourth noble truth has to do with the recipe for doing that, how to go about this process of freeing yourself from um, dukkha. And the next part of the teaching, if you were imagining a roll-down menu, right? there's first noble truth, second noble truth, third noble truth, fourth noble truth, there is a method. You pull down that menu, and there's the Eightfold Path. Right? That's how you go about it, the Eightfold Path. And the first of the step on the Eightfold Path is something called wise view, which means getting the correct framework for reality. And there are a couple of different aspects to that. One ties right back into the Four Noble Truths. So wise view is the Four, the four Noble Truths explain it. So it ties back in, it like locks back in. The second part of wise view is something called mundane wise view, which is actually a pretty important part of the Buddhist teaching. So the Buddha says, there are states, intentions, attitudes, and actions that flow from greed, hatred, and delusion. And these are trouble. These are what are called unwholesome or unskillful actions, whether they're of body, speech, or or mind. And they come from suffering, they come from delusion, and they dig, dig us deeper into suffering. And then there are actions of body, speech, and mind that flow from generosity, wisdom, and compassion. And these are wholesome states of and they are to be encouraged because they are non-suffering and they are conducive to liberation. So the, the Buddha basically is looking at this in terms of functionality. These kinds of states, they're suffering in and of themselves, and if the mind doubles down on these, if it, if it uh, you know, keeps going in that direction, the spiral is going to be into more and more suffering and more and more delusion. On the other hand, these other kinds of states, the wholesome ones, these are non-suffering states. And so the increase of those wholesome, skillful states actually begins to take us out of suffering 
these are onward leading, these are beneficial, these are functional. This is what we want more of. So, he may, so this is like a clear moral distinction uh, within his system. That some of these things you want to, and, and this is talked about later in the path, uh, in the section that talks about uh, wise effort, but some of these things you want to let go of and weaken in your mind stream, and some, some of these other things that are wholesome and skillful, you want to summon, you want to develop, you want to strengthen these in the mind. So that is a description of wise view. And then the second part, the second step of the Eightfold Path is something called wise intention. Wise intention. So this has a couple of different aspects to it. And it basically describes the attitudinal direction that the uh, practice path takes. So the Buddha is telling you right up front in the second step of his training that there's certain attitudes of mind you really want to train, you really want to, you really want to develop. So this is an important teaching because it's right at the front end. And were you to think of the Eightfold Path, you can think of it like a hologram. So every part of it is reflected in the other pieces, and if you if you want to understand it well, you, you would consider it as a totality, right? So these things are are laid out as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, but they're each one of them is inherent in all of it. So if, if in looking at this question of wise intention, we're saying that. It answers the question, what's the direction of this practice path? What attitudes of mind are being cultivated as part of it and while I practice? And what attitudes of mind need to be present to and in practice for transformation to occur? So wise intention has two main aspects to it. And the first of these is renunciation. Renunciation. Now, that's a word you don't hear a lot in Western culture. You know, for, uh, for Western ears, this often lands as kind of close to denunciation, you know? The first impulse might be, geez, that sounds like a grind, you know? Is that like... Uh, Lent 24-7 for the rest of your life or... <laughs> so it's probably the more difficult of the, the two qualities to understand and uh, accept. Except for if you remember the Buddha's problem statement where he laid out the cause or, or the main source of 
discretionary suffering. And he said it was greed, greed, hatred, delusion. Those are all aspects of how this manifests. But he said the cause of human suffering is actually ignorance, but it's expressed as craving, craving. So you can see how cultivating an attitude of renunciation, which is non-craving, might directly confront this tendency of mind that is the expression of delusion and which is suffering itself, in addition to leading us to many unskillful actions of body, speech, and mind which cause further suffering. I don't know if you remember from the talk the other night on the hindrances, but one of, if you remember the first of the hindrances and what that was, it was something like sense craving or, right? The first was sense craving. So a way to to think about this is that training in renunciation actually allows us to let go of an addictive relationship to pleasure-seeking. And think about it. Okay, we're biologically set in many ways to go for what's pleasurable, right? There is a, a, a loose link between what's pleasant and what human beings need to survive, right? A baby is born, it comes, comes from its mother, you know, it comes out and pretty soon its mouth is like, <laughs> right? It's looking, it's looking for food. Uh, you know, the mother is often looking for the baby, you know, hopefully there's some uh, pleasantness in nursing, you know, our whole reproductive uh, dynamics are set up with pleasantness as part of it, right? And that is part of our instinctual life. Uh, we like pleasant tastes, we like pleasant smells, we like, you know, soothing touch. You know, so there's, there's a sense in which this biological selection for pleasantness, it's not like completely dysfunctional, but it, this preference that we have can keep us from going upstream to open up new potentialities and higher levels of functioning if, if that's the only thing that we consider. If we're led around by the nose just by what we think would be most pleasant in the immediate sense. That doesn't go too well, right? I don't think I want to go into work today. It's like, I think I'll roll around in bed for a while this morning, you know. (laughs) So even on a common sense level, we realize that, you know, sometimes you have to go upstream, right? If you want to get in good physical shape, then 
you've got to work out or get exercise, whether you feel like it or not. You know, if you, uh, you know, want to get healthier and try to lose some weight, then that means you have to eat different or you have to eat less or you have to do something. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, But, so we know you can't always go just with the pleasant. You know, that's the path to, to all kinds of things, including addiction. So training in renunciation allows us to let go of an addictive relationship to what is pleasant, which lets us set a wise course and direction for our lives and our actions. Then we can go upstream against the conditions and conditioning of delusion and the suffering that flows from it. So this craving tendency of mind has to be challenged in some sort of way in order to do spiritual practice. And you, you know for yourself, I mean, there have probably been times since you've been here, it's like, I don't want to go in there and do it, you know? I don't want to do, I don't want to do the walking, you know? I want my phone. (laughs) Right? Maybe if I walked to town and, you know, (laughs) I'd meet somebody along (laughs) the road that would, you know. uh, So, renunciation is really about priorities. And it is, it's a value statement that assumes that what is most important is something called bhavana. B-H-A-V-A-N-A. Which is the, the cultivation and development of the heart and mind in the direction of liberation. So if you want to cultivate that which will lead you to freedom, then you need to prioritize that and be willing to let go of other things which lead you away from that. And those things sometimes in the immediate sense might be the things that seem most preferable if you're looking at it just from the axis of pleasure or unpleasant. So let me talk a a little bit about this. uh, These two words I've just introduced to you. One of them is Vedana. Vedana. So this is (coughs) an important thing. If you looked at the the teaching of the Buddha called the Satipatthana Sutta, where he talks about the cultivation of mindfulness and the steps you take to cultivate mindfulness. The first area where you cultivate mindfulness is mindfulness of uh, the body. And the second place where you cultivate mindfulness is in relationship to this quality called Vedana, which is the subjective experience of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. And the Buddha has this whole teaching on 
uh, dependent origination where he says, if you, if you want to look at where, the he, where we can start to free our minds, you would notice what the mind does in relationship to the presence of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. So this is actually a mental experience. We tend to think of this as inherent in certain experiences, but the Buddha would say it's a mental reaction that arises with every experience. So he says the untrained mind in the absence of mindfulness, if there's the experience of pleasantness, the mind reacts with um, craving and greed and gloms onto it and wants to keep it going. We'll just kind of like spontaneously go for it, right? Spontaneously go for something that's pleasant. Well, and, and the Buddha says, and if something is, arises that's unpleasant, the untrained mind and the absence of mindfulness will automatically want to get away from it or try to make it be different. So it will react against it. And there's a whole teaching on neutrality, but I won't go into that now. So basically this is a saying, okay, there's this uh, deep com- uh, conditioning in human beings, pleasant, go for it. Unpleasant, dump it. And if there's no mindfulness, that's just what we automatically do in relationship to those two things. Which is another way of saying that we're totally pushed around by these random experiences of pleasantness and unpleasantness, right? We're always swinging back and forth. Ooh, like it, hey, don't like it. Like it, don't like it. Like it, don't like it. So where's the, where's the freedom in that? We're kind of being whipsawed around by these mental uh, arisings. Where is the uh, both the freedom of choice there, but also the freedom from the agitation and of mind in having our happiness or unhappiness or our internal mental states controlled by what what arises in this way. So to get back to the point about renunciation. If deluded craving stemming from ignorance is the cause of suffering, then that says we ought not to follow craving if we want to be free. That that's not the pathway. It's a little bit like drinking uh, seawater. So there can be initial satisfaction there, but it actually increases the thirst and doesn't satisfy it. So we need to recognize and let go of craving and not follow the path of entanglement if we want to be free. Now this other word that I talked about, bhavana, is an important word too. And it basically translates as cultivation. Cultivation. And it points to this understanding that whatever our current type of configuration is, whatever our current level of spiritual development is, it's not fixed. 
It's not fixed. So given that everything arises due to causes and conditions, if we change the input that we control, and we do that by the kind of attention we can bring and by what we choose to develop, we can change, we can shift over time our internal experience in the direction of increased freedom and happiness. And the process, this process of doing this cultivation, of choosing our evolutionary direction as spiritual beings, this is called bhavana. So the Buddhist teachings aren't deterministic. So whatever your set point is now, it's actually not so set. So by letting go of, you know, enchantment with sense pleasures and using it, uh, and using sense pleasures as the measure of things, we open up the possibility of freedom by being willing to choose otherwise when it's skillful. So this obviously is very contra our social values. You know, when I consider social media, for instance, is anybody familiar with the the term Potemkin village? Okay, a little students of history here. (laughs) Oh yeah, you. (laughs) So, you know, there there was a period during the the communist era in the then Soviet Union where you know there are all these horrible things going on internally in in the Soviet Union um, you know all these pogroms and you know mass incarcerations and just terrible terrible repressions going on among uh, for many people there by the government but the government you know, to put a happy face on things, actually created these artificial villages called Potemkin villages that were, you know, kind of like happy land. And so, you know, people from the West would come, reporters or, you know, political people would come and they would show them the, you know, like the happy Russian peasants living in this, you know, workers' paradise and... um, it was all display, right? It was all display. And social media is a little bit like that, is it not? The Potemkin village of uh, curated images and all the rest of that. You know, the, the selfies and the, the likes and the, all of it. Do you think people are really having that much more fun than you are? <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's actually a new, new psychological syndrome now called fear of m- missing out. FOMO. FOMO. Everybody's got FOMO, you know, because everybody is, is looking at these curated representations and... Wow. 
But, you know, reality really isn't like that. It's more uh, this tapestry of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and, you know, renown and disrepute. The Buddha talks about this in terms of the eight worldly winds that are always blowing, that we can't control, you know, they just can sweep through our life uh, at any time. So it's not stable in that kind of way. So if, if we operate from this idea of uh, fixity or that we can get things to be the way we want them and keep them that way in any kind of real sense, we're in delusion land because large parts of our experience and large parts of our life will be other than that. So then what? How do we meet that? How can we mitigate the suffering? How can we mitigate uh, that experience which is inevitable for us as humans? So in order to be free, we have to learn how to work directly with the non-preferred as well as the preferred which is a different thing than pouring all our energy into getting and keeping the preferred version. So, so renunciation is about clarity on priorities, the willingness to let go of sense pleasure as the primary orienting value and the willingness to go upstream and against our preference when that is skillful. And just to clarify, this is in no way a commentary that sense pleasures are bad, because they're not in and of themselves bad or unskillful or anything like that. And the Buddha talks about the satisfaction that can be found in sense pleasures. It's just that they're not all that. (laughs) Now, the second aspect of wise intention is to practice and cultivate non-harming. Non-harming. So, we probably know what harming looks like you know, hurting in different ways, ourselves or others. So the Buddha says the second important attitude is the opposite of that. And this is also a value statement, and the Buddha is saying, if you want to liberate your mind, train it in this way. Which is another way of saying that uh, Metta, or loving-kindness, and karuna, which is compassion, should be cultivated towards yourself and towards others. So that's one type of non-harming, attitudinal towards yourself and towards other people. And you can see that there's a big social and a relational value with this, too, because if you have a mind that's inclined towards and committed to non-harming, that allows us to be 
trustworthy and trusted people. Right? If you've ever met somebody that you trust deeply, that's somebody that probably you just have an innate sense that you know they're not going to take advantage of you, they're not going to turn on you, they're not going to, you know, throw you under the bus if things get tough. You know, they're reliable in a certain kind of way on the, the character level. So that kind of person can actually be a unifier, a kind of inclusive being that brings about harmony and reconciliation. And actually, such a being can be somebody who can help end cycles of conditioned dukkha by injecting something new into situations, something that's not controlled by fight or flight or freeze. And that's a very constructive kind of being to be. So I can remember a few years ago seeing a a TV special where Ianla Van Zant, who's an African-American teacher, go to Ferguson, uh, Missouri, where there was a lot of uh, racial uh, polarity and conflict going on in, in the wake of a police shooting and see her go to the African-American community and work with the people in that community and then to see her go to the white community and work with the people in that community with what seemed to be a huge amount of equanimity and the capacity to, to be open and relational with people who had very polarized views. And that had something to do with the fact that she has this particular quality of mind, metta and compassion. And it's perceptible. So these attitudes of goodwill and compassion help hold society together, hold relationships together, families together, communities together. But they relate not only to how we regard others, but they relate to how we relate to ourselves. So how often do you hear somebody say something like, well, you know, I... I love everybody but myself, or... Have you heard that kind of thing, or have you thought that kind of thing? You know, I'm good to everybody else, but, you know, I'm hard on myself. So, by cultivating non-harming internally in respect to ourselves, there's a way that we can end the internal war that we often experience, where our own system turns back against itself in a kind of reaction to its own distress. Have you ever had that, that kind of experience where, you know, say you're crossing a street and it's slippery and I don't know, you fall down in the middle of the, the intersection and you skin your knee and you feel embarrassed and, 
you know, when you get up, what your mind is doing with that is, God, you're a dumb shit. I think we've got a bleeping mechanism on this one. <laughs> you know what I mean? You ever had that? God, what a dumb bunny, you know? <laughs> it's like that kind of stuff, that kind of self-talk. So then the question is, so when you experience distress or stress, what's the inner voice there? Like, how do, you, how do you talk to yourself? Is there goodwill there? Is there compassion there? Is there self-encouragement? Is there kindness? Do you talk to yourself in a way that's different than how you would talk to somebody that you love who was having the same experience that you're having? Okay, if, if that's the case, and it frequently is the case, then that would be an indication that this is an a, a area for bhavana, for development. So with the development of metta and compassion, there can be a unification of mind where the system actually responds to the inner knowing of difficulty and pain with kindness and self-support and foundational loyalty. So goodwill and compassion are powerful attitudes to meet arising internal states. So you have the opportunity to practice some of this here in terms of what arises for you in being here on retreat and doing these practices. So if you have the experience, for instance, that, you know, you keep, you keep falling asleep or, you know, you keep getting lost in thought or, you know, whatever the hindrance is, take a look when awareness returns. You know, are you doing this? Yeah, hopeless. You know, you might want to consider speaking some internal words of encouragement then to yourself. I myself personally like it's okay, baby cakes. (laughs) It's okay, baby cakes. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. You know, like how a nice grandma would. <laughs> so you can see that this, this Buddhist practice isn't a head-only training. So you're, you're training or cultivating the emotional system as well and seeking to strengthen the already wholesome qualities of mind that you you already have. So you already have metta, you already have compassion developed within you to some level. You would never wind up at a place like this doing this kind of thing if you didn't. (laughs) It would be just too (laughs) right. I don't know. 
what you would be doing. I, I could say some things, but I will refrain. So you've already got, you've already got this, both the potential and some development of these qualities of mind. So this understanding of bhavana is that it's, it's possible for you to choose to further encourage, encourage the flourishing of these particular qualities of the heart-mind. That is within your range of things that can be done. And the, the metta practice, for instance, that's being offered in the afternoon is actually a structured method for doing that cultivation. That's the purpose of that practice. It's not, the purpose of the practice, the main purpose is not to try to get some immediate big experience to arise in your mind. It might, and that that would be a lovely thing if that happened, you know, like all of a sudden, like a big a big glowing sun of love for all beings without exception going out in all directions and you totally disappear and it's all just like radiant <laughs> love, love, love. Probably not. <laughs> but you're, you're methodically and intentionally by choosing to think these thoughts of goodwill and loving kindness you're deliberately planting the seeds of this particular quality in your mind stream to continue to grow and, de- and develop and to arise at certain times in the future when the conditions are there which support their manifestation. So a lot of what happens on retreat doesn't show immediate dramatic evidence. It's not like a chia pet. (laughs) You know what I mean, you know, like, I don't know, one of my young cousins was really into chia pets for a while. Quick turnaround. It's more like, uh, yeah, more like puppy training. So wise intention, very important. You need to read this understanding into everything else that follows. And the following sections of the Eightfold Path, the next three sections of the Eightfold Path are wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, that largely overlap with the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat. Not completely, but largely. So that's an interesting thing. After, you, after we talk about cultivating wise intention, then we say, and we're going to practice non-harming in our behavior in these three ways. Okay? So it rolls down into, and this is what it means behaviorally, these kinds of things I won't be doing because they're harmful. And it's only then where you get to the steps on the path that talk about wise effort, which again goes back to what the Buddha says about what's skillful and what 
isn't skillful and what you want to increase and what you want to decrease and to apply your efforts in that way. And then finally, finally, you get to meditation. You get to wise mindfulness and wise concentration. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of those are seven and eight on the Eightfold Path. So us Westerners, you know, we, we like to jump into it. <laughs> you know, we're kind of DYI uh, folk. And we want to get into it. We want to get into the meditation, which is very good and useful. And I think it's a much fuller experience when the practice is actually framed in this kind of way that I'm offering tonight because you realize it has a context, right? And certain things perhaps become a bit clearer about what the practice instructions are and why they, the instructions are the way that they are. You might be able to understand something like why the instructions aren't, you know, just sit down and, you know, get happy and kind of get high on and just, you know, get higher and higher and happier and happier and happier. The instructions uh, include things that seem to be counterintuitive, like if something painful arises, if there's mindfulness and the mind body has resources, you should actually turn towards it and practice with it. That's very counterintuitive. But if you remember that the framework has something to do with us being able to cultivate um, liberation of mind within the full range of human experience, you can see why it's important to develop some willingness and skill to meet what's difficult too. So that's my brief and uh, tour of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the role of renunciation, the role of non-harming, the holographic nature of the Eightfold Path, the way the sections of the path uh, connect with each other, and the big framework and the roll-down list and all the rest of it. So don't try to remember it. (laughs) Don't try to remember it, but somewhere down the line, five years from now, when you hear another Dharma talk, um, um, some things may come back to memory. And just so you know, uh, many, if not all, of these talks are going to be uploaded to Dharma Seed at the end of the retreat, so you can hear them again. So... May we undertake the training and practice of liberating our mind through the cultivation of goodwill and non-harming. And may we become a being who is trustworthy and worthy of trust for our own benefit and for the benefit of all beings without exception.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.